All right, Scott, we haven't completely abandoned the downbeat sort of idea, even though we're, you know, doing a little, doing a little different. So I'll, this is this comes from the um, one, of, one of last week's episodes of the Joe Button podcast. Since we were talking about them, Cat Williams mm-hmm. said a couple things that resonated um, with me here. I, I, I want to see what you think. That's it. You don't have to reply to that. I just need to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But our but our society has has elected worshiping the bag. And see, the whole problem is you can't worship the bag and be on the front line of this. And um, so what do you what do you think about that when he talks about worshiping the bag as a society? We have gotten so used to chasing that next paycheck, chasing that next dollar. And sometimes the, or you the, get the first dollar. The, sure. But <laughs> but but he's, he's saying like the, the moral value out of so much has been taken out what what do you what do you think about that idea i mean capitalism is what it is i don't know of any rich soldiers right yeah that's interesting yeah Yeah. unless they're mercenaries so do you uh do you consider triloquy one of those projects one of those podcasts that is chasing the bag or or chasing the truth (laughs) chasing the truth baby period (laughs) let's get started I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Some timing there. We did it. We had to we had to practice that. It's always the second take, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome everyone to Opus 102 of the Triloquy podcast. Thank you so much for being here. If you are a new listener, this is a podcast that takes that phrase classical music and just does something different with it. It's, that's as simple as I think I can put it. Mm. You feeling okay this week, Scott? I know you've been out in the in the hot sun. Man, I'm I'm telling you, I get tired so easy. I have to I have to wonder about this whole you know, I think I, I think I had COVID like last February, uh-huh. a year ago, February, because I've got. I'm just saying I have the symptoms that sound like a lot of the residual effects, so that's what I'm blaming it on. It could be because <laughs> I'm old and I'm tired. Well, but, 97 yeah, degrees tired. in Minnesota is a lot, and that comes from me and it's human being too. used to that down south. Yeah, it's human. But anyway, uh, welcome again, everybody. Uh, before we get started, I want to give just a, a few shout outs. First and foremost, to WDAV over in North Carolina and Georgia Public Broadcasting for picking up the sound of 13. Thank you so much. As we're talking about the race shirt, there was another state, uh, Georgia, I think, uh, took race completely out of the classroom. Right? So as we're, as we're seeing that, again, as I was preaching uh, last week, we have to do what we can as musicians as so-called classical musicians so that that's my way of doing it so shout out to um everybody over there for picking up that show i'm really honored and and humbled that that has continued to be um in syndication i also wanted to uh give a quick shout out to the lakes area music festival for um throwing some support to triloquy and uh, we have some really awesome collaborations coming up for their next season of uh, concerts and programs so i'll be returning to um talk a little bit about that scott you did a, a a little interview recently. How about you uh, talk a little bit about that? Right, for Music Journalism Insider. Actually, I think it was three or four weeks ago, mm-hmm. yours came out. Yeah. 
and Todd, the the gent who puts that together, came back around and said, well, I guess it's time that we should talk to you. And so you can check that out at Music Journalism Insider. I'm sure that you'll provide a link in the description of the show. Yeah, shout out to uh, Todd Burns, I believe. Mm-hmm. I, I think you were... You know what? What you've I haven't read the interview yet, but what you were telling me about the interview, I think, is is what a lot of people need to hear as far as what the next stages are and 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 of public radio and public broadcast and all that. Yeah, sort of thing. and I so. also make make sure that I let everybody know that hey, I know that there are some people that disagree. This is a this is all opinion, you know. But I have to say, uh, I'm a soldier here with you too. Yeah, right. I'm on the front lines too, yeah. and and I'm calling it like I see it. So if they want to get mad at me for saying what other people are saying, then okay, I guess. Well, I'm looking forward to checking that out and to uh, sharing that. I wanted to give a shout out to Imani Wins. Actually, it's a little bit of applause to Imani Wins. They are now the resident Woodwind Quintet, the faculty Woodwind Quintet yes, of Curtis. I read that. Congratulations. And I was actually in on the Zoom. So, I, you know, they're one of the, the Imani Wins Foundation is one of the things that I contribute to. So I was invited to this, you know, Zoom with a special announcement. So not only did they announce that, um, they announced their new horn player, uh, Kevin. So, yeah. you know, the, the organization is shifting. You know, I, I said this uh, during the sort of talk back question and answer portion. I'll, I'll repeat it here. I think it is so inspiring for there to be this ensemble that I have been a fan of for over 20 years, and they've solidified themselves in the industry so much mm-hmm. that it can live beyond the players. It's an aesthetic. Yeah, you know? it becomes um, kind of like the Canadian brass. There's only one original. Exactly. There's only one original member of the Canadian brass, but but they, it's still Canadian yeah, brass. They still sound like the Canadian brass. You can pick them out of a lineup, easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Valerie Coleman isn't uh, playing in the group anymore on flute, but um, you know, again, just being the foundation of of something that inspired so many people. I don't know if I would be sitting right here in front of you today if I hadn't seen a black woman playing the bassoon. Shout out to Monica Ellis. So. Didn't you say that you toyed with being an English teacher once? Oh, yeah. I, I started as, uh, as an English major in oh, college right? and then switched that very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, today's guest is Angel Refuse. We talk about uh, Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges, have a really incredible conversation there. Angel um, specializes um, in opera, uh, lives down in Florida, uh, is an island boy, as he would say. So we have a mm. really uh, great conversation and um, some interesting factoids that came out that I was never aware of. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting into that. But for right now, let's go ahead and get going and start movement one. That was me vamping a little bit because I have to, I haven't memorized where the buttons are yet. It'll come. So it's, yeah. it's, it's coming. Let me It'll cut come. my volume up too. So I'll uh, go ahead and throw a little cover your way here. I want to get a, I, I need to put a natural next to something I said last week. Okay. Let me, um, oh, let me find my, let me, there you go. Right. Because, uh, we were talking about, uh, Josef Joachim and Johannes Brahms, uh, the famous composer and famous violinist. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, Joachim was getting a divorce. Brahms sided with the wife. Yes. <laughs> and um, I said the off the olive branch was uh, the violin concerto by Brahms was was dedicated to Joachim. Yes, it was, but it was actually the double concerto that was the 
the olive branch, hey, I'm sorry, sort of thing. That he still and, did not accept. Right. And I think <laughs> that the, I think the cellist he wrote it for, he was in Hot Water too. So it was sort of a, like, hey, guys, stay out of trouble. can we all just get along? <laughs> well, thank you for, for that natural, for that correction. Uh, the first accidental that I wanted to get into this week, I am going to throw a big sharp to the tennis player Naomi Osaka. Mm. I'm, I'm reading here from Huffington Post, the headline, Naomi Osaka shows that prioritizing yourself over a job is still a radical act. I'm going to read just a little. The hardest yet most rewarding lesson you may learn in your career is to choose yourself over a job. Take the latest example from Naomi Osaka. In a bold move, the four-time Grand Slam singles champion withdrew from the French Open on Monday, citing her mental health. Osaka had previously announced that she would boycott press interviews at the Open in order to take care of her well-being. She says, I've often felt that people have no regard for athletes' mental health, and this rings very true whenever I see a press conference or partake in one. Um, as a result of the boycott, French Open officials fined her $15,000 and the Grand Slam board sternly warned that she could be suspended from future tennis tournaments if she continued to skip news conferences. Instead of caving to the pressure and following Grand Slam guidelines that are uh, that are worsening her mental health, Osaka chose a third option. She took herself out of the Open and refused to work under the set conditions. I'll let um, y'all read the rest of that. Um, I think the big piece of uh, dialogue that's coming from this that I'm seeing on my timelines is the necessity for so many to weigh mental health Mm -hmm. versus your job and how what Naomi Osaka has done has really inspired a lot of people that can in some way prioritize their mental health to do just that. Well, it's, yeah, mental health is great if you've got the money for it. Yeah, um, yeah. Was it Julia Adolph? Is, am I remembering her yeah. name correctly? Yeah, shout so, out to Julia. Uh, we were, we recently recorded for her podcast, and I said, I would love to take therapy. I remember going six times because that's what my insurance would pay for. Yeah. And I would love to be able to get unplug from something that was giving me grief like that, but I don't have the money. Yeah. What do you think about the decision um, by the French Open to force its players into these news conferences. Why does that matter? Would you be upset yeah, if I'm your favorite sure. athlete didn't do a news conference if you saw got to see them perform their their art their their athletics at a Person, top level? Personally, no. I right. under, I understand how people do have that level of fandom. Yeah. And and love for a musician or an artist of any sure. kind, but if if I let's let, let's say that I was some uh, professional sports ball yeah. player, yeah, and and I said nothing, wouldn't that add to the allure? Sure. I mean, if I was a recluse, sure, and and only said cryptic things here and there, wouldn't that create a really interesting persona? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I, a think really I'm, fun I think I think I'm going to go in that direction. I think what's unfortunate though is if it was all love, if it was all fandom, maybe Naomi wouldn't have a problem with the news conferences. But you know, as she's been citing, so many folks at these things, these so-called you journalists said, mm-hmm. are just, you know, shooting shots. And you said this is the French Open, right? Right, right. Okay, so we know what the British press is like with yeah. famous people there. You know, and, and Harry and, uh, you know, he he's talked about how ruthless they are oh, with yeah. Megan. Oh, yeah. So 
is it an assumption to say that the the French press would be just as brutal? I mean, when you're at that level and you've reached when you've reached that level that she has, any misstep is going to be fodder for uh, people to snipe at you. And let's face it, if you're a black woman, right, you get it worse right, right. everywhere, including over there in France. I'm sure. Serena, yeah, she get. Did you see? Um, so people were pulling up uh, footage. I think it was actually of Venus at a press conference where you she know, wasn't having it. She she was going off. She was like, "Well, I'm I'm not um, bothered because I know no one in this room could ever hold a candle to me and X Y Z, which is true, <laughs> right? You know. So and and that's how I feel a lot of times. Um, in you know, especially when I was on the stage as a bassoonist, I think we all have dealt with all uh, so-called classical musicians of color have dealt with the problematic audience member that catches you at the artist's entrance or whatever. You know, oh, yeah. one time yeah. I was performing over in uh, Los Angeles. I probably told this story on Triloquy. And this I was playing Shostakovich 9, which has this huge bassoon solo. Mm-hmm. And this woman uh, comes up after. She was like, oh, you sound so incredible. Da, 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 da. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Memphis. Oh, well, it is just so inspiring that musicians who come from nowhere can come and find success here in in, in California yes, next it's, it's wonderful but but if but if I you know if I cussed her out it would be something different right if, right. if I cussed her out is that wrong <laughs> <laughs> anyway so um did this article that I'm going to post it, it goes into you know this topic more broadly I'm just going to read a little bit more it says you may not be the reportedly highest paid female athlete in the world but if you have worked long enough in demanding environments you've probably faced this question do I sacrifice my well-being for my bosses or my own ambition I mean that is just the story of most of us with most people of a job yeah. who who feels like going to work every day who goes to work fully healthy fully ready to go every single day nobody i would say but here we are because of the restraints of capitalism and these these other things but i don't know do do you do you think there is any way for there to be a broad shift in normalizing things like mental health days and all of that. I mean, I feel like with a critical mass of the workforce, and we're talking about revolution level stuff, but with a critical mass of the workforce, just saying no mm-hmm. and really taking uh, Naomi Osaka's situation as an example, that could, that is something that could have huge impact. Personally, a personal opinion, I think it's going to have to start with your generation mm. because mine we are okay let me say me yeah i was programmed to go through school and college and get a job and produce yeah so um it is going to be very difficult for me to to call in to work or even you know to the podcast and and say i just can't do it because i, I feel like i have that responsibility my name's on it right you know so right um but the end result is running yourself to the point of exhaustion or a breakdown. Um, and we've seen that. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. And it's, so, and one of the things that, you know, shout out to Titus Underwood, you know, all, all of these gems he passes out. Something that he said to me that I'll never forget is, you know, I feel like I'm repeating myself here, but you, you, you can only give what you got. Right. And if right. you aren't making sure that you got, you can't give. You know, and and that comes to mental health and and everything else. Well, it's very cool that Naomi did this and showed other people that you don't have to follow the convention. Yeah. 
One of the other things, um, and we won't spend long, but one of the other things that's covered in this article is defining ourselves by our work. Yeah, We're so used to being, my name is such and such, and I such and such and such and such. Even, you know, with musicians, it was an exercise for me to separate myself from bassoon. Not that I don't practice or play anymore, because I I definitely am, certainly uh, coming up, but bassoon is a part of me you know mm-hmm. it, it gets to the point to where i what, what what if we all i met a you know speaking of pride month we haven't said anything about pride happy pride everybody happy pride happy, happy pride. pride to all of my uh fellow gays and and, and everyone else on the spectrum uh last pride or maybe a couple prides ago because last year was covid um uh i met a friend of a friend who would not tell us what he did for a living not to keep it a secret but you know i, so I have a i have a, a box. like basically he was like well i have a job but um you know when i'm not at work and really you know emphasized that well when you think about it you're really asking somebody uh you know if you just meet like hey uh tell me what activities you're into so i can put you in a box yeah so i can determine how i'm going to react toward you know i'm going to make assumptions about your politics and religion and yeah yeah or or uh you know Again, we won't have to, you know, spend a lot of time here, but I often think about how people on the dating scene for you see that you host classical radio and have preconceived notions about that. Yeah, so I quit saying that. <laughs> I'll have you uh, officially. Yeah, I just go ahead and I put the, the picture of me on the motorcycle, you and me together. That's up first. So you're so you are pro separate the individual separating themselves from the job as far as defining ourselves, you know, being yes. defined by our work is something that needs to go away. Yes, I would love that. Yeah, well, I would. I would absolutely adore it. I suppose we just need to practice that, and and I, I'll even like work said, hard to practice. Yeah, that. like I said, I think it's going to be your generation on down. We're programmed to be to work in the capitalist economy. Something that uh, Vanessa Rose, shout out to Vanessa Rose, kind of put me on to was answering that question: What do you do? Not by your job, but by your work. So I would say I'm Garrett, and I'm an agitator for example, you know, so what the job is, is it so important? Maybe you can start introducing yourself as um, an accomplice or even an an aspiring (laughs) accomplice if you're trying to be a little modest in certain spaces. I say things people don't care about, about music that (laughs) (laughs) anyway, so people don't care about. (laughs) So this is, this is, uh, so let's go ahead and move on to the next one, but this is tennis. Um, I'll mention as an aside, for musicians, one of the re- one of our books is the Inner Game of Tennis. Did you know that? No, that's just one of the books that we read, and it actually translates well when you talk about practice, when you talk about uh, stamina, and and all those sorts of things. So if mm. you're you're a musician or not, check out uh, the Inner Game of Tennis. That's a pretty good book. But there are some so-called pieces. Uh, or there's some pieces of so-called classical music that deal with tennis. And um, mm-hmm. I think among the most, probably the most famous is Debussy's Je. And yeah. before we cut on the mics, I was kind of I was kind of talking about it a little bit, but you, you didn't remember the, the sexiness of it. No, the I remember the sexiness of it. I, w- I just associated it with the wrong ballet. I see, I see. Well, for folks who don't know, Debussy wrote um, this, you know, ballet score. And originally it was supposed to be about a three-way 
uh, between some men or among some men. I guess that was a little bit too spicy for 1920, whatever. So it was, I guess. It, 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 the idea kept the same, but on the allegory of a game of tennis, two women and a, a guy playing tennis at, at night in the dark. Mm-hmm. and Like you do. Yep, right. And um, out of nowhere, a ball comes from outside of the tennis court, so to suggest someone had been watching the whole time. Hey. And, yeah, exactly. Anyways, it's not just, necessarily sexy sounding, though, is it? It's it's definitely mysterious sounding, though. There right? is, yeah, there is. Well, all right. Well, our next accidental here deals with a little of that. It 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 gets it gets a flat, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> that still tickles me. I need to find a trombone, but I think that that whistle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess the music played in the background here. Um, this. Let me get to the. Um, the headline for this flat. I'm reading from uh, NBC News. Florida opera singer charged with hitting officer with flagpole during Capitol riot. I'm reading an opera singer who once played Carnegie Hall participated in the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, where she attacked a federal police officer with a flagpole. Federal authorities said this week, Audrey Ann Southard, 52 of Spring Hill, Florida, was charged Tuesday with a host of offenses, including assault on a federal officer after she was captured on video yelling, tell Pelosi we are coming for that bitch, according to an affidavit David supporting her arrest. Scott, the op- the opera singers, Had the it. opera singers. Is this news? Are, are we surprised that I'm there not. were classical musicians among the insurrection? Well, there damn sure were classical listeners there. <laughs> Why do you say that? Did I say something wrong? <laughs> All right. Is that wrong? But I say it, and it's wrong. <laughs> okay, no, no, go, go into it. Why are you certain that there are, were at least classical listeners? There aren't the. Isn't classical music supposed to be this space of um, more heightened thoughts and you know opinion and you know all of these arts people? Be. <laughs> you said that is possible. It, that, that is <laughs> one of the side effects of it. No, I, are you trying to tell me that only liberal and independent people listen to classical music? You know, once upon a time, I think I would have been surprised to read this news if I if I'm going to oh, be completely honest. I I wouldn't have. I mean, and but we we aren't even talking about listeners. We're talking about someone who has been on Carnegie Hall. So mm-hmm. you know, when we when we talk about these things and 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 when when this news comes out, you know, it it says a lot to me about the equity work, the so-called DEI work mm-hmm. that's happening in classical music. You have these folks, folks that were at the insurrection on these com- equity committees and having these conversations in the workplace and maybe even making important decisions. I mean, do you think this should be, do you consider this a, a, a warning sign for folks trying to change things in classical spaces? I feel like it's women like this, people like this, that I'm going to have to, you know, that I am coming up against and maybe I'm assuming better mm-hmm. than I should. 
quite to, to be quite frank. So again, the question is, I mean, what for, from your perspective, what does the fact that we know of Carnegie Hall musicians at the insurrection, what does this say about those well, of us trying to change classical spaces? This this um, Audrianne. Yeah. Okay. Audrianne. Um, she, from this, strikes me as the sort of person who would write an anonymous DM mm. or a letter that says something like, uh, you're just jumping on the, the woke bandwagon. It should be about the music and, and how all these musicians have reached this pinnacle of excellence. Yeah, yeah. That's, she, that's I, I, I think that that is the sort of person we're talking about. And of course, all of this with the backdrop being <clears throat> all of these Republicans who were pretending to be cowering down or scared or, or maybe they really were scared. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, they're acting like this was no big deal. No we big just deal. need to brush this under the rug. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when you plan something, you can't be a part of an, an investigation for it because it's going to get you in trouble. Mm -hmm. That You know, that's just that's what has to be the case. I, I feel like Fox running the hen house. Goodness gracious, we, <laughs> a, a full-fledged just storm on the Capitol, and they just want to brush, could, we, we, we've had the conversation about yeah. the insurrection before. Yeah. If there's anything that I want folks understanding is that there are people standing in the way for real. All of these folks that we complain about, that we see on Fox News or that we uh, see elsewhere, you know, disagreeing with us, well, whatever your politics are, those of us who are on the more prog uh, progressive side of things need to realize that it's some real, real folks in these spaces, in these classical spaces that are trying to build real walls mm -hmm. to keep us out. Because if, if folks like that are at the insurrection, of course, they don't want to, you know, see black folks on stage or in the pit or whatever. Well, if if that is the case that they're watching and they don't they, they don't want you to voice your opinion about the piece of music, you should just play it and and take the applause and then go home. Right. The problem is and we're going to get into this in the trilogy. The problem is. Because so many white people don't, because so many white people have zero experience being racialized, mm -hmm. like your race being an active part of how you move around society and mm -hmm. all that stuff, racialization coming into art spaces or racialization coming into traditionally white spaces is just uncomfortable because the conversation of race never really had a, right, a purpose right. or a meaning. So I, I will acknowledge that it's uncomfortable, but that but change is uncomfortable. Sure. Right. The, the, the same folks who, you know, probably wouldn't know what to say if they were confronted with you, if you were to confront them with this in person. If they if they caught me outside, go ahead and well, say no, it. <laughs> you know, what I'm saying outside the DM, outside yeah. the nasty email right. or whatever. Like ha whatever. trying to have a real conversation. What do you actually have to say? Right. You, you know, know? If, if you were to say something, you, you who hurt you? No, you know that's problem. Some people think that's problematic. Who? <laughs> Hold on, we we have a uh, here we are. And that's problematic, Scott. <laughs> um, how about asking them say more about that? Sure, why I think that's why better. Yeah, why don't you? Why don't you unpack that so I understand? But of course, the way that they unpack that I for know. me is going to be different from the way they unpack it. Very. Anyway, I'll, I'll post that in the, in the description. We're talking about chaos in Washington D.C. 
We're also once again in Black Music Month, um, so I thought it would this would be a great opportunity to to pull up some black chaotic sounding music. Where we went first was actually Bad Brains, right? And DC I think, based, and I think we talked about them uh, maybe on season uh, one, way back on season one. Well, as we were talking about that, Dell pushed us to give a little space to uh, a band called Pure Hell. So this is a black. Uh, I'll, I'll call well it says here classic punk so mm-hmm. this is a, a black punk band from Washington DC uh, this tune uh, that I'm going to play is called No Rules it's from 1978 so as we celebrate all sorts of uh, black music and all sorts of American classic forms of music this has to be one of them do you have a do you have a did you have a punk stage or was I that, did oh did, did you sure okay well let's listen to a little bit of this see how you see how you like this <laughs> sounds hard if i'm in the right mood i mean if if i'm outside i've had a few drinks and no they're here in street legal leather jackets and the whole bit they look the part (laughs) they sound the part so so pure hell pure hell check them out yeah uh black you know black black music as you know, we're, we're, we've we've done it all, even it's the punk here. music. <laughs> um, final accidental for this week. We're going to stay in the uh, in the opera sort of world. And I think you were giving this one a sharp, right? I am. The sharp, the sharp. Sound. Oh, because I, I had my fader down. Here we are. I'm 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 coming, people. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that's sharp in the headphones. All right. Yeah, so it's appropriate. Go. Um, what is this? Uh, what's set, this article you had? Let me set the stage for you, please. There's a new web series, and it all revolves around a mystical hotel in the middle of the desert and all sorts of strange things, like maybe written by David Lynch Mm -hmm. or um, M. Night Shyamalan or something like that. But every part is sung rather than spoken. Would you watch? I mean, after selling it like that, you should reach out to them and do the promo. (laughs) In a world. (laughs) Yeah. um, So, no, the uh, Boston Lyric Opera, you know, while all of these uh, arts organizations are trying to figure out, you know, how they're going to open back up. Yeah. Boston Lyric Opera says, we see potential in this whole Zoom shtick. Yeah. So what they've done is they've actually partnered with some video production house, uh, um, you know, employing some uh, TV techniques. So we're talking the costumes and the makeup is going to be there. Yeah. Shot set up to look nice. This isn't going to be some, you know, uh, I don't know. They might be shooting it on an iPhone for all I know. But basically what I'm saying is it's going to be that nice production web yeah. series, not, you know, the the DIY thing. Um, and so what they're going to do is for a hundred bucks, $99, you can watch the whole series. There's going to be eight of them anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes long. Mm. So I think they're, they're speaking to both this idea that people have gotten used to, uh, consuming things through the internet, you know, and, and purchasing them, you know, in the moment. Um, I think they're also catering to, the crowd that isn't interested in sitting down for three hours of opera. Right. Me. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, 10 to 20 minutes, you know, you can, you could really build some tension. Yeah. 
in that in that short time span. And so I'm thinking about going ahead and buying the pass just to see how they do it, just to, just to see what the production values are going to be. Now, if you look at the uh, Boston Lyric Opera's website, there is an informational seminar coming up on Zoom uh, June 16th, and we'll have the information okay. up on that. So you can you can get an idea of what they're going. I, I wonder if they might, uh, you know, it would be my hope that they would show some snippets maybe. Yeah, know, to some see little what we previews. Into. But we were, we've talked so much about what it would take to get you back in the concert hall. I think it's great that somebody's looking at how they can up the value of what they're giving you to consume at home. You talk about how we're used to looking at the screen, which we yeah. very much are. This is my question. And so we're used to looking at the screen. We're also used to, to an extent, paying for certain things, right. paying for Hulu and all that stuff. Are we used to paying $100 for something in front of the screen? Is, is one of my questions. Maybe for pay-per-view, I don't know how much a fight costs these, right. these days. Right. But, right. I mean, are we, are, do you feel like this is going to work? Because $100 isn't nothing, especially for, you know, something that is opera for, for, the, for the new audience member who might not have the, you know, understand the value that is being put on this. Is $100 going to get us there? I, I have the budget to be able to sure. do this. And the reason that I would do it is in the hope that it would catch somebody else's interest. That yeah. it, and, and if the Boston Lyric Opera was like in on the ground floor, and we talked about conventions in Opus 100 mm -hmm. with um, uh, Melissa and... Golda. And Golda. We talked about how there's conventions. There's no rules, but conventions. I'd like to see if they can... If, show an evolution you know sure. maybe maybe this is maybe this is the new spectacle that content creators can can dig into so i would i would throw some money at it in hopes that it worked and in hopes that others took a chance on it and i'll acknowledge that if it was one dollar you know that's a bear any price is going to be a barrier for someone uh -huh. do you think this is are you confident that this is not more of a barrier than otherwise. Good question. I don't know. I don't know. I hadn't. I, I hadn't thought it that far out. Um, we did. Um, I would feel comfortable if there was a way that it could be free. May, like maybe there was one weekend where you could watch it for free. Mm -hmm. Or but, maybe or like I kind of want to just buy one and just to sure, make sure. sure. <laughs> yeah, like okay. spend twenty dollars. Okay. And then if I want to come back, you know. So maybe that's the next step. I don't know. But um, I would, I, I'm seriously considering, I'm going to go to that Zoom meeting uh, to get some more background on it because I really think that they could be onto something. I want to support the artists. Yeah. A part of me, and there's no way for either of us to answer this question, but I want to know how much of that $100 goes to the artists, how many black artists are up there, or am I lining the endowment of this organization? Because you can only get so many people in the opera house, certainly when yep. we talk about COVID yep. uh, or after COVID. It's limitless, virtually. Yeah. You know, it, it's virtually limitless is what I meant to say. But, you know, but, you know, $100 times a thousand people that aren't even in the concert hall that you don't even have to worry about air conditioning, a building right. for them and all right. that stuff. That's a bag. Who getting it? Right. Yeah. I hope I, I hope that it is getting down to the artists. But also, you know, we we can't forget the people who are going to the, from the picture on the article. This guy looks pretty beat up. 
Um, so we're going to have, you know, there'll still be costumes and makeup. Um, I, I, basically what I'm saying is I hope that the uh, the people on the production level are getting a slice, a nice slice of the pie as well. I'm going to double check. You know, the Black Opera Alliance has a a, a pledge that many of the I was uh, I'm trying to think. I think most of the, of the American opera houses have signed. I need to make sure that Boston Lyric is one of them before I promise I'm going to spend uh, my hundred dollars. All right. But if they are. I will support because I think it's a good idea, and you've you've sold me. So it's called Desert Inn. Opera gets the mini series treatments, and we will have information about that in the uh, description. Bef- before we leave it, I like the length. Mm. I, I like twenty minutes. Now, if I'm paying twenty dollars an episode, don't give me don't. I better not log on and have an eight minute episode. <laughs> like there are limits. Right, it can right, be right. too short for that price, as far as I'm concerned. You know, or it better be a just really engaging eight minutes. But I suppose we'll see. So I'm hoping. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. I'm hoping that I'm hoping that it does get the interest of other groups and that this becomes a thing. I yeah. think it sounds fun. Yeah. All right. Well, those are the accidentals for this week. Before we get into the second movement and talk about how we took the second ending this week, I wanted to transition with a Willie Nelson song. Uh, Dell and I were sitting around on Saturday night scrolling uh, the the movie channels. J- Django was on. I've oh, seen yeah. Django a lot, but. Brookback Mountain was also on it. I don't think I've seen that since I saw it in the theater in Memphis that played it. There was one theater that would play it. And mm. it, that that was the theater in our neighborhood, the artsy sort of neighborhood. Sure. But, you know, uh, do you have any memories? And this is, again, this is Pride Month, so we can talk, well, I'll, we'll talk about it a little bit here. Do you have any memories as far as the environment surrounding you when this movie came out did you go see it in the theaters first of all no i saw it on cable so when uh when the movie was kind of going around do you remember any sort of feelings one way or another among folks you were around or the city in general no well i mean omaha is um nebraska is fairly conservative as a state Mm -hmm. omaha omaha is the is and lincoln are the most liberal spots in it you know, the, the two big metropolitan hubs. And so uh, I, I think for the people around me, that really struck a chord because mm-hmm. they, they probably, you know, there's plenty of cowhands in sure. Nebraska. Sure. I'm sure that they probably uh, either saw themselves or hated the fact that they were being portrayed in a, in a hope that cowboys were being portrayed in a homosexual way. Yeah. When it came out, of course, it was very easy for all of us gay men to just center Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal and all this and X, Y, and Z. But it's a nice story. It's going, a great story. Yeah. Going back and, and watching it now with my mind now, my heart was breaking for many of the women. Right. And like I think about the woman who played Heath Ledger's wife, you know, catching uh, the fish, the, 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 the two, note and the fish, yeah, the note and the fish. Yeah. It, it started when she caught them making out at the bottom of the steps. And, you know, how heartbreaking that must have been for her. And then Heath Ledger meets another woman a little while later that he strings along and breaks her heart as well. And, you know, at the very end, I, I didn't mean for this to be the, the breakdown of Brokeback Mountain, but at the very end of the movie, you know, when Heath Ledger's daughter comes and is telling him how she's getting married and all that, you know, I think that's a very dark ending because who knows what she has to deal with in her future husband because of homosexuality. Not because of homosexuality, excuse me, because of homophobia. Right, the negative way that it was portrayed. Because Especially then and even now to an extent how, and, I, and I'm not, you know, removing all 
onus from the gay men because mm-hmm. having the courage to live in your truth is very important, mm-hmm. you know. I, and I, I very much believe in that. I also understand that the ecosystem has just forced so many women and men, you know, across the queer spectrum into situations that hurt themselves and the people, the people around, around you, them. you know. Yeah. So, goodness gracious, I, I hope that you know, as we're uh, going through this Pride Month, we can, you know, think about. Things like that, and and even story, even a story about two gay men. You know, we can take a moment to talk about the women and decenter that for a minute. I, th- I think is very important. I think it's very important. Uh, I I will just say that it's a great story, incredible performances, and isn't that what you want in a film? Yeah. Anyway, my long way of saying at the <laughs> at the end credits, they have this Willie Nelson song that is placed so perfectly, and I don't care what genre of music that you gravitate to most, or even if you've heard of Willie Nelson, I can't speak a lot about Willie Nelson, Mm -hmm. but I know that this song in that space was very emotional, and of course we can always relate these songs to ourselves and think of our own friends who, you know, we've lost, lovers, friends, whatever. So anyway, as we get into this uh, second movement, here's a little bit of Willie Nelson's He was a friend of mine. He was a friend of mine. He was a friend of mine. Every time I think of him, I just can't keep from crying. Cause he was a friend of mine. Dell sat there and cried real good. You know, because remember, at the end of the movie, Heath Ledger has Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, clothes like one of his shirts and one of his jackets mm-hmm. hanging in the closet next to a picture of Brokeback Mountain. And then that, anyway, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to get in my emotions. And, and I think we all hear that song and have someone to think about. I think you're right. You know, so anyway, shout out to Willie Nelson among, you know, a very important musician among America's classic composers mm-hmm. and, and performers. You know, no question. Did you hear that guitar? You and know, he's still there's no question about it. He's still out there grinding out the shows. And been a, a, a proponent of cannabis for decades That's now, right. you know, trying to normalize that. Man, you, <laughs> who whose tour bus would you get in? Willie's? Or Snoop's. Who do you think? Who do you think? Who do you think has the thickest fog? This is the thing. I think they both have a a pretty thick fog going on. I would go on Snoop's bus, but I would be nervous because I know Willie Nelson's weed is gonna just be regular weed, you know, <laughs> regular <laughs> classical weed. <laughs> Snoop got something else. <laughs> There's no way that that's just regular weed in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I'd like to see them both go at it. <laughs> I'll see who can outsmoke who. Let's, let's just see. We need we need the cannabis versus is what oh. you're saying. <laughs> nice. Anyway, how did you take the second ending this week? What were you repeating? I went back to one of the OGs of uh, classical piano, at least in my career. Uh, I have to have been playing Awadaj and Pratt's recordings for at least 25 years. Yeah. Now, for at folks who don't least, know, who is that? Awadaj and Pratt is a um, the, the he's a he's a black pianist, but he did sort of a head fake of music lessons because he was playing violin. 
but then when he went into college that's when he that's, mm. that's when he takes you know piano uh, seriously i didn't know that goes that's to, he goes to peabody and he was the first student to graduate with violin piano and conducting degrees um he's uh in cincinnati now and teaching there and living there with his wife i went back to uh his live in south africa album because i was going to try to um you know that the baroque isn't my era right whose era is it really no shade and shade not shade right (laughs) but i was trying to see if he could get me into the bach because he's got a lot of bach recordings and it was not it it did not listen listen it did not hit either way (laughs) and so i went all the way back to his 1996 release which is one of the first that i can remember putting on the air back when he was wearing his cosby sweater (laughs) and um I, I just love the way that he did Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number 31, in particular the second movement. There's power, grace, uh, and and just his the the way that he vibed with it, his 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 cadence, everything about it, I loved. crisp yeah and there's like a lilt yeah, to it like yeah. it's not just plain notes no, he was there's movement it. there's push and pull i i need to underscore something you said i love all of the musicians especially the black musicians i'm rooting for everybody black i'm not listening to y'all bach i'm just not (laughs) like that was my thing like during uh you know when quarantine was actually a thing okay everyone was you know learning how to plug up a mic and putting your music on the internet and all that stuff i think that's great if i saw somebody you know in the caption talking about a little bach for the afternoon i'm just gonna scroll past and Mm -hmm. i'm and this is what's this podcast called truly queen i'm just trying to i'm just trying to be real i love everybody's interpretation of everything i think that's great bach is not going to get me in in front of y'all's performance right and you know so shout out to awa dodge and pratt shout out to all of the black pianists out there uh playing bach um he had uh when when he, was, when he was grinding <laughs> it out on the tour schedule he was doing so many dates that he said that he was getting close to exhaustion so um he's uh teaching now and um what was I about to? Uh, His busy schedule. He teaching. Right, and yeah. So um, he's uh, getting. He's plans to get back out on the road doing another forty to fifty shows a year. Okay. So would you go hear his Bach live? I I'm just not feeling it. I'm <laughs> I would sorry. be I would be nervous to just get up and go. <laughs> I mm-hmm. would I would be nervous that I'm going to be sleep. It's it's just not it's not my bag. It's I, not my bag. I would sit and listen to him play Beethoven. I did notice through Spotify that. He does not have any recordings of black composers. Also, when uh, oh, I'm dodging. Are you getting something for me? Are you getting a sound? <laughs> Go ahead. He don't have no black. Uh, he don't have no black composers. What else? Well, just from what I saw on Spotify. So don't roast me just yet. Okay. But also, I noticed that in the suggested layer down below, where it tells you what you might like to listen to next. Yeah. 
there were no black artists there, only white artists, and none of the white artists that you go to went back to Awadash. The algorithms are racist. That's Let's have I'm that saying. conversation another day because yep. people laugh at me when I say that, no, but I'm it's real. Saying, no, I just watched it happen over the weekend. Exactly. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that another day. Okay. Bach. Was you can't a, let it go. Was a church musician, oh, okay. right? Right, right, right. You know, you, I love my segues. You I have know. to give it up for my segues. That's actually where I spent my last week. So for Black Music Month, I always push myself to listen to a bit of church, black church music because yeah. you, you can't deny the way the black church has played a role in, in the development of everything black, certainly for the first century post uh, 13th Amendment and antebellum slavery and all that stuff. So, you know, for Black Music Month, I, I, I practice my own little bit of equity and um, and listen to some church music. So I found of uh, this one album that had a whole compilation. And one of the tunes that I was really vibing with was one by a group called Whole Truth. It's called Can You Lose by Following God. And I wanted you to just hear a little bit of this, Scott, because this is a vibe. Would you not go to this church? I would go. He created the heavens and the so much how would you lose if you follow God I follow him anyway Father I stretch stretch my hands to you does that little breakdown sound familiar at all to you there's a song that I've shared with you that sample I'm, I'm sorry I'm not able to place it I'm sorry so when I when I heard that I was immediately shook because I immediately recognized and was not expecting to hear that because it was sampled. Mm -hmm. So um, last year at the last Grammys, you know, Scott, one of my heroes won a Grammy uh, for Best Contemporary Christian Album I remember. was Kanye West. And we've been talking about this album, Jesus is King, since 2019, since late 2019. You have. I think... It's just so incredible, and I don't love every song on the album, and, uh, you know, obviously I'm not down with him shouting out Chick-fil-A and, you know, all of that. I'm not religious, <laughs> okay? But there are a few tracks on that album, despite the mixing not being so great or whatever, just the sample, how the sample was pulled was, in my opinion, really brilliant. So I just wanted to um, share just a little bit of this. So you heard the breakdown in that last tune. Right. Kanye starts there in this, in this composition called Follow God. Okay. But he drops in the beat. Listen. Life like this is what your life like. Try to live your life right. People really know you push your buttons like type right. This is like a movie. You hear the organ? You hear how the organ is a part of it? Every single fight, right? I was looking at the grammar and I don't even like lights. I was screaming at my daddy, told me it ain't Christ like. I was screaming at the referee, just like Mike. Looking for a bright light. Seek what your life like. Riding on a white bike. The sample. The sample. Have you ever tried to do a sample like as, of, of all of the things that you do with your Ableton and everything? Is the sample something that you've made it to experimenting with? No, I haven't. Mainly because, uh, shout out to John Fleischer, when he and I get together and I use a loop or a prepackaged beat or anything like that, including samples, he looks at me like, why didn't you just do that yourself? <laughs> but the, just the, do that yourself. But you have to admit that there is an art 
to the sample, like especially if oh, it's done yeah. well. And anybody, I thought that sample was fire. I, I'm definitely going to that church. Anybody who thinks that they can just sit down and do what you just heard, you, you've got a surprise coming for you. And I'll tell you, one of my dream jobs is to, if I want to get a job, <laughs> is, is to be one of those people that are just listening to all of this music and all of this music and saying, oh, hey, this might sound cool. Because, you know, at some point, Kanye or someone else sat down and heard Whole Truth singing that bluesy, uh, Can You Lose By Following God, heard something that would work. And, and here we have another piece of gospel yeah. music, a contemporary gospel music. It even won a Grammy for it. So I, I, I spent my week revisiting both of those tunes. There's even a, a video where someone has meshed them together oh, with nice. a smooth sort of transition. So I'll, I'll put that in the description. But I, I just want to be clear. <laughs> I am not about the church music and all of that stuff. Typically, with that being said, this is dope. And and that gospel music that is that is all an American, you know, classical music. So mm-hmm. it's is is definitely worth celebrating, especially during uh, Black Music Month. So uh, as we get into the uh, third movement here again, uh, this week's guest is Angel Refuse, an opera singer and you know somebody in the battle trying to. Uh, <laughs> there's there's radar, uh, someone in the battle trying to really you know shake things up and change things. His perspective is the island music, the uh, Caribbean, and how all of that ties in. We talk about uh, uh, Joseph Belinge, Father de Saint George. So yeah. I'm really um, looking forward to sharing this with y'all. One of the things that we um, begin talking about, you know, again speaking about church music, is spirituality and how all of that sort of uh, plays a role in these conversations. So to get us into the conversation, I thought I would uh, give friend of the show Christine Gangelhoff a shout out and uh, share with y'all a little bit of her rendition of a piece called the Voodoo Jazz Sonata. This is a work by Haitian, the late Haitian composer Julio Hassin. We'll listen to a little of this as we get into my conversation with Angel Refuse. Um, when it comes to American people, I think that's part of the divide in some senses is that um, Americans are so Christian that they identify their blackness through the black church. Yeah. Yeah. And anything outside of that is considered less than and I have nothing to do with it. And so that's part of I would say a part of, you know, the conquering divide kind of perspective. Right. Right. But then again, in the Caribbean, it's kind of the same thing because there there are bona fide Catholics and Protestants oh, yeah. and who will hold on to that, that, that philosophy and damn themselves. And it's so funny how um, even in Haiti, um, a lot of people will, will say, hey, um, you know, you know, we got our, our liberation by by making a pact with the devil kind of thing. Mm hmm. And when one studies African spirituality, it is the most divine, respectful, disciplined practice, even more than Christianity. And um, yeah, so it's it's it. And not to mention, I know I'm probably rambling a little bit, but one of the most important things that I wanted to highlight, especially about um, 
voodoo in relations to liberation. And I'm going to mm-hmm. use Haiti because that's that's kind of like the undercurrent. Haiti, Le Chevalier de saint George of this conversation is in the history of Haiti, it wasn't all voodoo that helped liberation. It was diplomacy. It was military strategy. It was a lot of intellect alongside of the spiritual reinforcement that created the opportunity for the liberation. Um, and um, particularly with Jean-Jacques Dessalines, in his early youth, there was a um, a woman by the name of Victoria Montu who was Diome, and she was like a surrogate mother to him. And during his teenage years and upbringing, she always reminded him, Jean-Jacques, you're going to be the one to free this country. Mm-hmm. And she was a warrior when during her time in Africa, and she actually gave him military skill sets and prepped him for his position to be the general that um, to free Haiti, so to speak. Um, so it wasn't all just a matter of a stroke of luck and, and, and voodoo, but it was actually of intelligence, strategy, which they never highlight, you know, yeah. um, in yeah. the story. So. But that spirit, but that spirituality, certain can't certainly can't be uh, uh, taken Denied. away from the Mm-mm. from the struggle. You know, e- even even globally, I think there are lots of uh, overlaps there between the black church and the you know Afro American struggle versus you know the more uh, how can I, I hate to say more traditional, but the black cultures that I guess are closer to the motherland that are culturally closer. That ancestral memory is there. I think there are val- valent things to uh, to highlight in in uh, in. Both cases, yeah, and, and and if I can advocate for um, for the relationship of voodoo and Christianity, they're not that far apart. Mm-hmm. If one looks at look, because a lot of people say, because um, um, I I get I get damned for for that in so many circles, but a lot of people look at um, spirituality and say that um, you know you know oh you know it's of the devil it's of the, but when you look at Levitical law. Or like the like you know Leviticus, or when they talk about you know you have to slay the fatted calf, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to go before right. the Lord clean. There's certain things that is all African indigenous practice. So at its fund, and even when um, Old Testament, when Abraham dies, he they say he goes and joins the ancestors. Right. And when Jesus prays, and and you know in Jewish tradition, you say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you pray in African spirituality. You say you say um, you pray to your ancestors first because it is taught that the ancestors are the one who gave us the knowledge of the Orishas and gave us the knowledge of 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 our spirituality. So we always give veneration to them, just like the Judaic practice of saying God of Isaac, Jacob, because Abraham, you know, Abraham, Elijah and so on and so forth. And Moses gave us a direction for understanding who Jehovah is in that context. Right. So it's still right. the same thing. It's just not accepted because of history and so on and so forth. But at its fundament, it's still doing the same thing. Even when it comes to animal sacrifice, you can go to Levitical law and see a lot of those things that are almost identical. Yeah, And it has yeah. nothing to do with anything demonic. It's just a veneration and offering, a a, a peace. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? So it goes, right. you know, and, and so on and so forth. So when you look at the parallels, even Christianity is an African religion. 
And, you know, when we talk about uh, honoring those ancestors, we don't even really have to go back thousands of years. There's so many great thinkers that were on the ground uh, having these conversations and doing this liberation work back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. You had me look at a, a John Henry Clark uh, clip in uh, as, as we led up to this meeting. I appreciate your sharing that. And, you know, one of the things that I think about as I watch that sort of content, I'm think, I, I had the opportunity to listen to Nikki Giovanni speak earlier today, you know, and I'm thinking about all of the soul TV and everything that she did uh, back in the 70s. You know, all of this content has been there for so long and we're and we're still having uh, these conversations. Of course, you know, the the Internet and podcasting and all of that stuff is much more far reaching than network television at this time on on this evening was, you know, but what what do you, what do you think about the, uh, you know, the continuation of that tradition, creating content? Content showing um, and uh, and unearthing conversations that can just inspire inspire thought. It seems like you know we're we're in a long tradition of that sort of thing. I agree, and and a lot of times, um, I guess ego, I guess um, being young, and a lot of these movements, when you go back in time, are just a repetition of history. Right. Even some of the conversations yeah. that we're having. Yeah. But for instance, I'm looking at the Harlem Renaissance for for a, an upcoming project that I'm working on. And um, I love to look at life, you know, outside of the box as, you know, almost like a forensic investigation during a given era when I'm researching for um, uh, um, a musical or artistic project and try to get a sense of, you know, the panoramic view, but also from the perspective of those individuals who are in there. I'll, I'll utilize, you know, the Harlem Renaissance to bring up a point because um, John Henry Clark is a product of the Harlem Renaissance. Right. And um, and was very much involved because there is J.A. Rogers, a very prominent historian. There was um, James Weldon Johnson, who, by the way, yep. genealogically, I'm working with the historian. Um, I'll put you in touch with her. She's fantastic. Um, her name is Ramona LaRoche. And she, she specializes in... Um, um, in genealogy is, is one of her niches um, in, in her skill set. And she found out that J, um, James Walden Johnson is of Haitian descent. The, the, oh, and wow. His brother. Yeah. Um, and, and these and are, of so, course, the authors of the Negro National Anthem, or what we know as the Negro National Anthem, right? Correct. And um, also a number of art song competition, um, compositions, pardon me, and um, piano as well. And he was one of the uh, very involved in his time um, with the NAACP um, and getting that, you know, up and running. The reason why I'm mentioning these names and that sort of thing, um, because they all um, I- I'm going to email you after this. A, a there's a letter of um, William Grant Steele and um, Langston Hughes talking about Haiti mm. during the Harlem Renaissance there was this understanding of self that I think was so even more profound than the civil rights movement because it was black people understanding how to build in every aspect of human activity, unapologetically, well-rounded, wealthy, you know, and from, from, you know, the upper echelon to, Everyone was working to create a better self, a better mm-hmm. world. And there wasn't a disconnect 
that we see now where there's where blackness is kind of compartmentalized and not embraced as an, an expression because the way that blackness expressed itself in the Caribbean and the way that blackness expressed itself in America and you know on the continent or in Europe should all be embraced. It, it, it shouldn't be like, oh, that's something else. No, it is a different expression. I think during the Harlem Renaissance, there was this era of, um, how could I say it, of, um, of understanding that, that connectivity. The reason why I'm saying that is from that time, those conversations that we spoke about, um, you know, probably um, with me responding to your comment is the conversations that were having, that were being had during that time by William E.B. Dubois were the ones that Nikki Giovanni, Maya Angelou, James Baldwin, John yeah. Henry Clark were having. And it's what we're having at this moment. Right. That right. sometimes right. we to get the picture, you have to step back a little bit further. And I like that era because it to me, it was the most complete um, because there was a development in every aspect of, from, you know, from the sciences to, um, to, to the arts. It was a complete movement of, yeah. of, um, of progress. It was very progressive and everyone was so worldly and they understood, you know, that they were aware of what the black man was going through in France or right. the black man was going through on the continent. And they were right. so, and when I, when I say the black man, I mean, you know, I'm referencing to us as a whole as, you know, everyone was so aware of each other. And, um, so it's, 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 I think, you know, it's, it's us looking back and realizing that it's important for us to understand where we stand, where we're heading, where we're going. And um, I know this is going to be something we speak about in the future, but I think it's us getting to the point where we embrace all of who we are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and including including that music and the and the musical training and, and what we uh, perform, you know, all, all being a part of that. But before we get into the music, I wanted to, you know, when we talk about this global black person really understanding who we are, one of the uh, schisms I see between, you know, today's, well, I shouldn't say today's activists, the, the younger activists, the millennial and Gen Z people on the ground, you know, doing these things versus some of those ancestors, you know, that you've mentioned, Baldwin, uh, Giovanni, all, all those people. One of the schisms I'm seeing is uh, the idea of seeing blackness, really contextualizing blackness, or just considering it um, a, a fabrication, something that was just made up to divide us. I can understand the idea of race as a construct, but personally, I'm challenged by the idea that black doesn't define an experience. It it doesn't define um, a people with that shared experience. I, I, I can't reduce race. I can't reduce blackness to just a, a construct. What are your ideas on that? I agree with you a thousand percent. One one of the challenges that I have, so the term black, I'm for it, but there's a there's an aspect of it that is very limiting. And I think that's um that 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 should definitely be accented because the history of the word black, it it's um especially during like, you know, the black black is beautiful movement. Um yeah. I'm black, you know. There's a pride that comes with it. There's a sense of overcoming. I think that's really brilliant. But even in this adjective that we made a noun, there is an idea that is 
when you say black, you immediately think Black Lives Matter movement. You immediately think of a condition, a struggle. A, but I think it's really important for us to also understand too. And then you you think physically, you think um like visually of the color black, and yeah. so you only consider the dark hued individuals. There are um, there there's a um a, a few paintings in the um or on the glyphs in the pyramids of Egypt where they highlighted the different people in Egypt. And you saw people of, you know, reddish brown, jet black, you know, very, very, very fair skinned. Mm-hmm. And the range of, on the continent of Africa, of features, of, of, of hues is very wide ranging. And we're talking indigenous, not, not, you know, right. Right. After the diaspora. So, you know, I would prefer to say, you know, African, because when you say African, you think of the whole history of the continent. You think of the diaspora. You think of pre-Columbian life. You think of the ancient civilizations that were amazing. So it links you to something a little bit bigger in context. But um, it's, it's how can I say, it's the word of the day, so to speak, to um, right. when you say Black people understand where you're going. But personally, I prefer to use afro because you can say afro-european afro-brazilian and then you get to understand the history of how the the africanness of that history takes place in, in the given you know exactly um, geography exactly. so to speak so I, I really my personal yeah i really appreciate your affirming that because uh, especially after i got into radio i started intentionally using the phrase afro-american not not to say that i have a problem with the word black because i personally i don't but i i, I really really appreciate you know you're affirming that um and african people have a shared experience in the same way that afro american people have a specific experience afro uh frenchmen and women and 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 so on and uh and so forth now with that being said you know that word black has been applied um in years past to uh the composer that i wanted to talk to you about that phrase uh the black mozart i think most folks understand why that's <laughs> Uh, really <laughs> uh, problematic. But I, I think there's something to that conversation because we aren't calling, uh, well, you know, the people weren't calling Chevalier the, you know, French, uh, let, let me, you know, Paganini or, or, or whatever. It, it wasn't about that nationality. It was about, you know, that idea of being African, that blackness, plus the very Western European, the very white person that he's being compared to because of his musical skill, Mozart, black Mozart, all of that uh, for me to ask you the question. When we celebrate um, Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges, especially as a musician, are we celebrating his blackness or are we actually celebrating his proximity to whiteness? That's a very dicey question. It can go in so many directions. Um, <clears throat> but to be frank, I think one of the things that I, I often question um, in programming and even in my own my own way of being um, is a lot of us fight for liberation. We fight for you know our own identity and everything. But as soon as we get an opportunity like this, you know, 
prior to Black Lives Matter movement, there were articles in 2019 written about the Black Mozart. Right. And even before. Yeah, yeah, and even before. So with that being said, I think it's imperative for us to understand the reality of his life. He was not accepted into, into French society as we thought. Hmm. Um, there, there are accounts um, by by historians where where he was denied by the by the Paris Opera because the the, the patrons of the opera were like we're not subjecting ourselves to a French mulatto to a mulatto, which means mixed race. So it was very evident in his time that he was a black man and not officially a part of the society as a white representing man male. So what does that mean about our memory of him and the way we teach Chevalier? Because we certainly lift Chevalier up as this violinist and fencer who in European society um, reached this high level in society as a musician. All, you're, you're saying all of that is just a, a, a mix up of history. He, and, and, and just to put a little bit of clarity to it, he was achieved, well, well read, but you have to understand his his the way that the world was at the time. Mm. He was um, fortunate enough that French society is patrilineal, which means that you gain the rights of your father. And because at a young age he showed um, intellectual, you know, endowment and prowess, they, his father took him and actually um, took his wife his mistress, which was Le Chevalier de Saint-Jean's mother, and brought him to France mm-hmm. at the time in order to get an education. Because of his father's aristocracy, he was allowed the privilege to be who he was. And oftentimes, even in French society, it was very... Um, he was not always like I, I use the example of him um, at the Paris Opera. There was there was a, an example where he was also a general for the army, um, and they created a legion for him. And he did he was an abolitionist, mm-hmm. so he did fought for he did fight for the rights of um, of uh, fight against sorry fight for the rights of you know of, of free men, you know in the colonies and so on and so forth. Um, he went to. England during his time in England, that's where he became he became acquainted with the um, abolitionist movement. So he was he it wasn't just this guy who, you know, out of a stroke of luck, just became, a, um, you know, a black man who just rose in in, in French society. Yeah, you know, it, it that's and that's what I mean by that. Like he was well aware that he had to fight for the liberation of his people, and you know. And one thing I want to bring up, it's it's a little bit um, out of context, but very relevant, sure. is the idea of the mulatto, which played a crucial role in in his in history, especially amongst you know freedom fighting and liberation, that sort of thing, especially in the Caribbean, is um, with during his time, um, alleged time, because um, there's there's some. Um, conflicts in the historical annals whether he was in haiti or he wasn't Uh um there are documents saying that he did travel um it was during a time of exile during the french revolution um but one of his challenges was because of his father's aristocracy he had incredible privilege 
And because of his mother's, you know, you know, heritage and, you know, he had incredible challenge. Yeah. And that was one of the common things, especially among the French Caribbean, especially in Haiti. A lot of the mulattoes protested the um, the Haitian Revolution because of of this very fact that they, you know, they would lose their aristocracy in connection with France and all of their privilege. So that was one of. Well, I, well, before we get too far from that, to put some context around the word mulatto specifically, because, you know, I have a very mixed audience. Can you um, just speak to, you know, the implications of that word that that is it's certainly not on the you know, on the level as, as the N word, but it's not a word that should just be thrown about all willy nilly, you know. I agree. I agree. And. And I'm, I'm literally speaking in the context of period. Um, that was what it was called. It would be as if the, speaking in the context of the turn of the century and talking about the Negro National Anthem or, you yeah. know, um, but we're talking about a specific era in time where that term was used to describe a, a the mixed race. Right. Or, or um, in, in French, they would call it the, um, the Jean de Coulet. Um, or the light and color, so to speak. And they had oftentimes a little bit of power and privilege. Right, right. So and it's very important because this was the class that Le Chevalier St. George was considered. So they could assimilate into high society, but they were not considered authentically so because of the mixed race. They were never detached from that, that blackness. Even, you know, after uh, the Chevalier, uh, Beethoven famously wrote uh, a violin sonata that was originally for George Bridgetower, the mulatto sonata, in essence. Of course, you know, the history was that that was changed. But I just wanted to make sure everyone listening had a little bit of context behind that word specifically, because that can, you know, get you in some hot water <laughs> it, it, in certain places if you are a, of, of a certain hue. I just wanted to make sure that was clear. Uh, can can you speak a little bit more to the Chevalier's relationship with the Caribbean? I know in one of our previous conversations, you spoke to the uh, the the Caribbean perspective of Chevalier as someone who may have been, you know, softened by Europe and European culture. Maybe not so much of a help to them in all regards. I, I agree. Um, one of the things um, during his exile from France. Um, some of the annals state that when Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges was in, in um, Saint-Domingue, that's what it was, it wasn't really Haiti then, um, according to um, biographer Gabriel um, Benin, reports that, um, you know, that Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges was, was kind of, he came back a little bit um, distraught because mm. of, there was a disconnect between the mulatto, uh, the the mixed race, pardon me, of Haiti and the and those who were you know black black representing, so to speak, at the time. And part of the revolution was that, you know, and and it was said that Le Chevalier um, helped helped fought in the revolution. This is this is all legend, um, yeah, and that. You know, they they kind of scuffed at him because he was considered to be, you know, they say that he he needed a lot. You know, he wasn't really, you know, the best at what he did in comparison. And that was what was said about him in some of the annals. Um, I find this story. 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, I was going to, maybe you were going here. I find that story so interesting because I think there are clear parallels in present day. The idea that the classically trained black musician doesn't necessarily fit into blackness and as in and as a larger aggregate in the way that the Chevalier sort of stood outside as these stories tell. I I agree. And but one mustn't forget that he was literally the number one fencer and he was a force to be reckoned with when he was fencing or he literally um was a commander in chief um in in the in, for the French for the French Legion, yeah. One of the things that um, he formed the Legion um, he formed the Legion under Chevalier de Saint George, and he appointed the first the grandfather, Alexander Dumas, not the right. literary, but his his father, right. Um, and they had they got into it as well because he felt as though um, Le Chevalier de Saint George wasn't being real with who he was. Mm-hmm. And there was, there was a divide in, in, in that as well. And you, you look at the, the, the historical context of how Le Chevalier Saint-Georges moved. It was always him in opposition because of his, his stature. You know, there, there was always envy. There was always awareness of his, his race in certain spaces there was always this challenge of his, of his, of his, his identity. And whenever someone took a chance, they were always, you know, one of, one of his, um, he was conducting one of his violinists gave, slapped him mm. and to maintain his status. And he could kick, and he really could fight this guy and, and, and annihilate him. He had, hands. he bowed his head. He bowed. He, 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 he said, he said, he said, I'm not going to waste my time with, with, with this guy because if this is beneath me. Yeah. Yeah, and and everyone you know marveled at him like, oh, such a gentleman, such a great guy. <laughs> so you, he, he, he literally that's what that's what happened because he had to play the social circle games, right, right. You know, with French society. So um, yeah, I, I, again. I, 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 and, and again, there are, there are so many parallels. I mean, considering the way that we uh, learn about the Chevalier, certainly on the on the musical side, when you put into the mix uh, the other stories, the things that we aren't always taught, what you're what you're speaking to now, how can we best celebrate him, as you said before, in all of his blackness? And what can we learn from his story? Again, the the parallels between this black man who um, is to a degree integrated in whiteness and acts as such for the benefit of, you know, other black people or maybe not. I mean, what 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 can the black musician learn from these stories, from the the true legacy, not necessarily the textbook legacy, but the true legacy of Chevalier de Saint Georges. What for me, it's 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 a matter of perspective. Um, you have to look at such a, a story like Le Chevalier de Saint Georges, and not and not really. How could I say? Um, you can't celebrate him because he is a the first black guy to assimilate into white mm-hmm. culture and achieve high status. And I think that's where we fall into error. But you can say that this is a person of incre- who experienced an incredible life that could have went in the opposite and defied all the, in, in spite of all the odds that were, you know, set before him, he was able to achieve this great 
musical, um, musical and um, how could I say in he was able to achieve a great a, a, a great a great life, so to speak. He, he was um, very just, consequential. His his life was there great you go. That's in I'm that way. To, I'm trying yeah. to spit the word out. <laughs> um, and, and what's really important is not for us to to really because I, I think we fall into error if we if we say, oh, you know, it, it's it's you know, because he's involved with Marie, he really wrote great compositions. And he really was definitive in the Parisian style. I yeah. think we should take a step back and look at how he, like we look at Mozart, we don't say, oh, Mozart's a great, you know, a great white composer because he, you know, played for Kings. And he, we say, no, Mozart, look at how, look at his, you look at, you look at Mozart's performance practices. You look at his tradition. You look at his compositional style. You look at his, you know, his, you know, his ink. And I think we should take a step back from the context of how, he defied all the odds in some regards and look at him as a composer Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and understand just like you would, um, you know, understand the performance practices, understand the tradition um, around his music, understanding, you know, his life, just like you would any other composer, like give, give it that value. Like you would a Brahms or, you know, um, or, you know, Shostakovich, you would really look and try to, you know, understand the composer's expression. And I, I never hear much about his style. I just hear a lot the about... The context of his music itself. Exactly. I'm saying yeah. give, give it that yeah. value. Yeah. And how... Um, and then you can hear... And sometimes when you hear Le Chivalry, there's there's a, a vibrant life to his sound, um, to the sound of his oh, composition. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. it's and, and not to mention, you can... Speaking of um, backtracking to... The earlier parts of this conversation, the Black Mozart, important interaction. The interaction. Um, and I think a lot of times, since he's often compared to Mozart, one never realizes that he was actually more superior to Mozart. Right, right. Mozart and is the, the white chevalier, as we joke around and say. <laughs> correct. And, and, and I think we really should understand his influence on Mozart. And I think, you know, talking about legacy and understanding Blackness of how, as more importantly of than his assimilation into the, the, the upper echelon of, you know, French society at the time, understanding his musical influence is a great part for, for a Black artist to understand of how someone of his stature was contributive to the Parisian style. During, um, after Mozart's death, Marie Antoinette invited him to the palace to stay. And I think she commissioned a few things. Um, he was introduced to Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges, who was 11 years older than him. Very attractive, according to the, the annals of history. Mm-hmm. Was the perfect gentleman. The ladies were around him. He had everything Mozart wanted, including wealth. Because he wasn't, you know, he, you know, his family, his family owned sugarcane and coffee plantations. Yeah. And so when Mozart meets this guy and then finds out that he's, he can compose, he's just as fluent a musician as he, there's a rivalry that takes place. And most importantly, he has the, the admiration and affection of Marie Antoinette, mm-hmm. which drove Mozart up the wall because during, I think when they were about five and six, 
they met in court, Marie Antoinette and Mozart, that is, and, said, and Mozart told Marie Antoinette, I'm going to marry you one day. So putting all that in perspective, um, it is it is a legend. It is it is it's made mention that Mozart um, wrote, you know, you know, the magic flute mm-hmm. and the evil Moor who had the keys to the kingdom all and, right. and knew all the secrets was Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges wow. as a jack. Yeah. Right. Oh, I, and I'm trying to remember that character's name. Right. Manastatos. Now. I, I, man, yes. Yes. Oh, I have never thought about that. That that's heavy. Wow. That's heavy. We're often told the story about the magic flute and enlightenment. And that's why the so-called Illuminati got them together. But yeah, that character in the, the again, like you said, the Moor who hung out with the queen of the night and her three ladies. And oh, wow. I, I'm never going <laughs> to listen to that music again. That's so that's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, and 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 so it, it's 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 said I've heard in some intellectual circles that that was what what it could have been um, by by a, a few of my scholarly friends. They're like they they think that 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 that's a theory. It's a theory. It's a theory, but it isn't confirmed historically. So, um, but it makes a lot of sense in context. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna actually um, outro here with one of one of those arias. Now that you've put me onto this, that's by by that character. That's incredible. Before um, I invite you to tell the folks how they can learn more about you and and uh, keep up with your work. I wonder, you know, what is your charge? Considering everything we've talked about today, what is your charge to today's black musician? I love that there are so many folks out there thinking ahead, thinking about what a um, a, a truly black symphony or a, a truly black opera looks like. I really affirm that. I also affirm the black folks who want to play music by uh, the Chevalier, Mozart, and all of those other folks. To the latter, what is your charge to those musicians? What is what is your word of advice to the black musician approaching and performing the music of Chevalier um, as far as, you know, light, uh, shining a light on this history and, and really affirming, as you said before, again, the wholeness of blackness through that performance and through our celebration of that composer? Definitely treat him like you would any other composer. You know, but most importantly, because this is a huge question um, or um, my comment to to what you said about, you know, the black symphonies and developing programming. One of the things that I think is really important is that we pair him not only with other black composers, but with composers like Haydn was a big influence on him. Yeah. So put him against the composers of his day that were peers is a great way to make a statement. It's not Emphasis just so on that saying, word peer. Huh? Emphasis on that word peer. Right. Peer. Like, like who are, who are, who are of the same caliber as he, right. Cause he was not um, a composer of like, he was creme de la creme of, 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 of French musical style. So, you know, you can pair him with, you know, with all of the great classical um, composers of his day, including Mozart, yeah, yeah, which he influenced, <laughs> yeah, and um, and so I think it's really important for us to look at our music, um, and pardon me for you know for 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 erasing a divide on blackness, but really, um, I love when Price says 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 this, and she says, you, if you compare our music to theirs, we can hold our own, mm-hmm. and you really can take 
the music that we have composed. We have a we have hundreds of years of unknown composers who wrote fantastic music that is engaging to to any audience, um, young, old, um, connoisseur to to you know to uh, neophyte. Like it's imperative yeah. that we understand the value, and for those music those. Um, new compositions that we that we unearth that have never been played is to really apply scholarship and help develop a performance practice so that you know um the tradition so can be carried so much more properly. yes so there's so much more of this is not hidden or legend it's just what we know and it's a part of our training yeah and and i really think that um we really have to be holistic and scholarly in our approach to our music. I think the way that this work, and we're, and we're talking strictly on, you know, on repertoire development, you know, from operas to, you know, chamber music, is our work is going to have to be in two directions. The new and the old, always. Because there are composers now who need that support and that voice. Mm-hmm. And there are composers from the past who need to be uplifted and venerated. Because in their day, they were just as great as anyone else, but just be a matter of circumstance, their music wasn't, you know, showcased. Right, right. So we really have to, my, my thing is there's enough black music that you can program for, for you can program for, for like 10 years straight. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so, so and, and, and from every era, from Baroque to, to, from Baroque to, you know, to new music, you have enough out there. So if you're doing it, do it in a way where you can create, you can, um, you can inspire. Like I really, I really think um, my challenge to the black musician, the new composers, is explore black fantasy and life in a new way. Mm-hmm. Not outside always, of the oppression, but in outside, in, into outside the, of the oppression. Yeah. I, I want, I, I want to hold our, our new composers to that. Listen, listen. How about how about doing a a an all black fantasy? How about Lion King the opera? I'm just right. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm not saying that that one would do that, but I'm you know there there are stories to be told that are not that are not being told. There there are stories in our own folklore from the islands from the continent that that are not being told. And this we have tons of you know we we've influenced everyone's mythology. But oh, we yeah. don't have, we don't value and teach our own. So I think creating, exploring Black fantasy, love, life, you know, different aspects of human activity, I think it's so imperative um, for, for the new musician. And also establishing um, a performance practice for the new music and the, the, the music that has been archived that no one knows. And, and really applying ourselves to the scholarship and explaining you know, and then the third thing I would definitely say is making sure that you don't just say this is a black composer, this is a black. No, this was, in, 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 with respect to Chevalier de Saint George, this is one of the greatest composers that lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Not creating that nar- and creating that narrative around him is is something you know that, that I think is a part of the work. Unfortunately, that that narrative we don't think typically of the Chevalier in that way, but we we really must. I, I believe it's the work. How can how can folks uh, keep up with your work to to learn more about everything uh, you're doing in regard to the Chevalier and and so many others? 
Um, awesome. So one of the things that I that I'm working on right now, I'm working with the New Canon Chamber Collective. Um, um, I'm artistically curating performances for them for this season, um, and we'll see what happens next season um, as things unfold. But I also have my website, Angel Refuse. Dot com, which is angelrefuse.com. That's how it's spelled. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can follow <laughs> me there. Reach out to me if you would like to collaborate, if you have any questions. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm free-flowing, so feel free to send me an email or reach out to me via my website, and I'm, I, I respond within 24 hours. So, um, I, But that's the best way to reach out to me. And um, Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, Monsieur Refusé, I'll, I'll say thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Principal Votre Travail. I really appreciate all the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. What do you think about the idea that Mozart wrote the magic flute and the black character in that under the inspiration of his jealousy of Chevalier de Saint-Georges. You know, Chevalier developed a relationship, excuse me, with Marie Antoinette. So out of, you know, anger for that, he writes this evil black character who is friends with this evil queen. I mean, that that makes sense to me. And it seems like that would be a story that wouldn't be passed down until hmm. folks researching this stuff actually see it. It, it sounds it makes perfect sense to me. What do you think about that idea? Well, I haven't thought of it in that direction, so thanks for that, because uh, I want to think that Mozart wasn't the vindictive sort, but I don't know. All right, well, let's... Well, but, I, but I can tell you <laughs> that he wanted everything that Joseph Bologna jealous. had. Jealous. Just jealous. Yeah. Listen. Now, okay, so, sure, he might go the evil route and, and make... The Moore character. I even mm-hmm. feel weird saying the Moore. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if that's an expletive or not. Me neither. Know? So, um, well, you but, say you don't know if Mozart would be vindictive. I want to read the translation, okay, <laughs> to the excerpt of that aria we just heard again. For folks who don't know, in Mozart's Magic Flute, there is a black character. Mozart right. writes a black character, and th- these are the lyrics of uh, his his major um, aria in that opera uh it says everything feels the joys of love bills and coos dallies cuddles and kisses and i should have avoided love because a black person is ugly was i then not given a heart am i not a flesh and blood always to live without a little wife would truly be the flames of hell thus i want because i am living to bill and coo kiss be tender dear good moon forgive me a white woman captivated me white is beautiful i must kiss her moon hide yourself for this should it vex you too much oh then close your eyes that those are the words of those are the words of the librettist who, who wrote for that? the magic flute not one rhyme <laughs> it, it rhymes in german i suppose <laughs> but basically what that, that was that's just it. salad so what mozart and all of these just completely innocent you know uh, men of their time composers you know what mozart is affirming is a character who is not only black but a character who, who affirms that being black is ugly right. being white is beautiful and forgive me universe my ugly black lips kissing this beautiful white woman i am so sorry oh moon close your eyes this is just too much for you to handle and i'm wrong 
for wanting to diversify classical music instead of hearing this bullshit over and over again. Listen, I enjoy Mozart opera as much as anybody else, but this is a problem. He ain't it, lying. Is, it is a problem for us to be continuing this. Scott. Is that wrong? No, Garrett, you're not wrong. Goodness gracious. <laughs> anyway. That gets me every time. <laughs> Let's get into this triloquy. A slightly more dramatic <laughs> triloquy sound. Mm. Okay, so there was some drama that I want to put people on to in real time. Okay. So we're going to um, do triloquy's first live phone call. Give, a, give, give us a second here as we get this set up. All right, I hope this works. Hello, Garrett. How are you? Jonathan Gibbs, you are live on Triloquy, so don't incriminate yourself. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Scott How is here doing, as well. How are you doing, Garrett and Scott? <laughs> hey, it's good to talk to you, Jonathan. So, okay, so, yeah. so I, I just gave a little short introduction. I didn't give too much information, but, you know, we're in the middle of Pride Month. Okay, we're in the mm -hmm. middle of Black Music Month, so we're, we're showing mm -hmm. equity to black people and people of color, and yet... The New York City Gay Men's Chorus is falling outside of that. How, how about you tell the people what's going on? I wanted to. I wanted them to hear well, it straight from you. It's just a lot, but this morning, and uh, let's let's. I think I don't know how much you preface. You said you preface a little, but I've been on a previous opus and have talked about some of the things that go on within the New York City Gay Men's Chorus and how it can do better, mm -hmm. and how all of my criticisms and all of my feedback for the New York City Gay Men's Chorus is for the betterment of the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. Otherwise, I wouldn't stay around in that space mm -hmm. because I am I am owed because as someone who grew up as a choral geek and who wanted to sing in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, but it's not Mormon, but, you know, this is the next best thing. It's, it's just that choral experience was something that you just always wanted to be a part of. Exactly. And you can't get it anywhere. And now you live in New York. Where else are you going to find a choral organization that large? So right. this morning, I received actually a text message in a group a, a facebook group chat um people asking what's going on and i saw a screenshot of an email and i said what is this it's an email a very long email all about me and how my membership has been terminated uh, because of uh breaking social media policies this that and the third um that's a i think that's a black phrase but the, this that and the third <laughs> um, yeah, sing your song so uh they Apparently, they, I checked to make sure like that they at least said something before they sent that out. And sure enough, 30 minutes prior to that, they sent me the exact same email, but just tailored toward me. So instead mm -hmm. of saying, Jonathan has served wonderfully or Jonathan has done this, it's just, you have your terminate. You have been terminated. You, you have done great work. Unfortunately, this is very sad, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is very interesting because just last night, like... 12 hours prior, the, the series, I'm sorry, the series finale of Pose on FX, um, a groundbreaking show about queer trans people of color, um, depicted the New York City gay men's course. And I've had to be silent about this since February. Mm -hmm. they, closed, they closed out by showing um, the New York City gay men's course historically um, as part of the story. And I got to be a part of that ensemble. I got to represent my actual organization that was being depicted on a TV show that is groundbreaking. And so I made a whole bunch of posts celebrating this moment, tagging New York City Gay Men's Chorus, so happy to be a part. Yep. And then I wake up to this. I'm like, 
what's going on. Now, there's a lot of internal drama that um, happened over the past few months, especially in the wake of George Floyd, in right. the wake of Black, Black Lives Matter and the resurgence of that. But in short, you're saying that they're saying you broke a social media policy, which was disparaging the organization by doing or saying what? Oh, I said that. Um, well, they referenced a May 21st post. And in that May 21st post, I simply said, I guess white supremacy is stronger than fraternal bonds. Mm. I'm not going to get into it any further than that. But that but there was some discussion that happened with people who knew what was going on. And then I deleted the post. Um, but um, take that shade for what it, you will. If you know what fraternity I'm a part of, then you know who I'm talking. You know what I'm potentially talking about. And um they saw that was the straw that apparently broke their back because they had been wanting to get rid of me for for the last six to eight years because I've always been a loud proponent for change for the represent, representation of BIPOC folks. The, the New York City Gay Men's Chorus has a list of stories from people who have left the chorus for reasons that they've left the chorus from uh, sexual assault, sexual mm-hmm. harassment, blatant racism, etc. And we, the people of color, I'm sorry, the motorcycle gang of New York is outside in the background. <laughs> you live in New York, we get it. Um, the, you know, we, the people of color of the chorus, have stood by the chorus and tried to just get them to do the right damn thing. I don't know if I can say that on here, but get, do the right thing and hold these people accountable who have committed these these acts that go against what we say are what we stand for today, whether it's racism, um, non-consensual touching, or even harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've tried to stay in and change the system from the inside and never really said much of, about these things to anybody. But after their really unprofessional takedown of me today, um, I don't even have to do anything. People are moving and folks are moving their feet. I've talked to um, various media outlets already um, I've got people really uh, retweeting and reposting the news, um, and they're really and having the membership on the inside use the bylaws to call a special meeting and um, get some accountability going. Um, it's it's unfortunate that this has to happen this way, but the reason um, the it's, reason it's I well the reason I wanted you know the folks to hear directly from you is because. We take for granted that during Pride Month, you know, we're, we're celebrating and, and doing all this stuff as we should. But I think a lot of people take for granted that gay and queer spaces often are as oppressive as non-queer spaces for queer people of color. And I feel like this is a prime example of that in, in, a, in a large, you know, in a large way. Absolutely. And I think on the previous opus that I was on talking about this, I say that this organization is just a microcosm of real life. Um, and so, you know, you're gonna have, you know, people of color, black folks, Asian folks, and they're in small percentages, and then you're gonna have systems that perpetuate privilege among white people. And then um, you're gonna have people that just fall in the margins of folks. Because let me be clear, a lot of the people, many of the people in the New York City Gay Men's Chorus are great. Um, they understand that they're true allies, but then you have problematic folks that are problematic, just like you have in the real world. And um, unfortunately, leadership doesn't know how to deal with them, even though black and brown people are doing the work to um, let everyone know how it should be dealt with, because this is the work that we live. These are our lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And they they, con- they consistently show us and astound me 
with how inept they are at just doing the right thing. So, so to the person, so to the person who's trying to be um, performatively or not <laughs> the the queer ally, what are your words to them as far as understanding the intersectionality of BIPOC queer oppression in queer spaces? How can folks trying to be an ally understand, you know, how to how to move when it comes to that concept that I feel like so many people don't quite understand yet? Yeah, and I think uh, I think the simple answer to that is that we are black first, or we are brown first, or we are people of color first before you know anything else about us. You see that first, and so if you're confused at how, oh well, how can you be oppressed in a group of oppressed people? It's called intersectionality. What do you see first? Those same systems are going to repeat themselves because, again, it is a microcosm of reality. So. Um, the best thing that an alleged ally can do is when they see something like this happen, say something. That's what we say in New York. If you see something, say something. And in this case, I need people to speak up on my side, but just in general, because this organization is not the only one. In the past year, theater, the theater industry has been called out by black folks. This is And it's and plenty it's, gay up in been, there. And it's plenty gay up in there. And it's just astounding to me that this could happen this year as this stuff is happening really the industry at large who well jonathan i appreciate you're not being shy about really raising awareness about this situation because if it's happening there i'm sure it's happening in in uh gay men's choruses across the country and if we're supposed to be celebrating pride i think we need to really dig into some of these conversations so i'll i'll be sure to have information uh, about all of this uh in the in the description i hope you're okay i hope you're in in pretty good spirits because again at the end of the day you know you always just wanted to be a part of a large core organization so i hope you know this hasn't broken your spirit too much oh no i'm you know i'm fighting the good fight and my my whole mantra here is and i think you've asked me before it's like why do you fight these people why don't you just go i deserve a space in in that large organization simply because it is a place to sing i should be able to sing in a large choral organization without having to deal with racism harassment or hearing of friends dealing with racism, harassment, erasure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. So I'm reserving my right to be there. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. You're you're our first you're our first uh, call in guest. So I, I hope you uh, I hope oh. you feel good. <laughs> special. Thank you so much, Garrett and Scott. Thank you. Right, Talk soon. Bye. So there you have it, Scott. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> straight from so. And what, what I want to make sure people understand is that the New York City Gay Men's Chorus is a volunteer organization. Right. So it's not like you're being fired from a job. It's right. not like there is a cost they're cutting or, or some sort of anything like that. They, they are, excuse me, barring certain conversations. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to be completely, you know, uh, frank here. When it comes to June, we have black Music Month and we have Pride Month. I tend to lean more towards the celebration of Black Music Month, even, you know, as a black queer person, because I understand this reality. I don't know how many people understand that the gay bar for black people, at least in my experience, is one of the most oppressive spaces you can be in, you know, because we don't fit that prototypical uh, sort of will and grace 
Ellen sort of gay. You oh. know, we're, we're a different thing. You know, as a matter of fact, down south where I'm from in Memphis, I know this is the case in Birmingham, Atlanta, many other places, you have pride and you have black pride. You know, so there is there are these tensions within the queer community that exist there. And as Jonathan said, if anyone is alleging uh, to want to be a queer ally, especially as we're talking about Pride Month, this is something you have to understand. It was very normal, Scott, for um, on your grinders and your th- there was no what do they use now where you swipe left and right tender I, I don't there wasn't tinder in, in my dating time wait you I'm know, on back tinder when. and bumble at this point but you know it, so on apps like those it was very normal it was very completely normal to see sorry no blacks no asians no fats no fems so when we talk about what mozart was doing in in that aria by just making blackness out to be ugly you know these things pass down from decade from decade to century to century and is not something that just doesn't touch the queer community. It exists as much there. So this is not me wanting to just shit on the New uh, New York City Gay Men's Chorus. You know, the first time Jonathan was on Triloquy, he was on here celebrating what they were doing and just so proud to be a part of this organization. But as we're looking for equity, as we're looking for change in the arts, we really have to be willing to push. I understand that these organizations don't want any of their members to be, you know, disparaging them or anything, and I, and I get it. But if something racist is going wrong and it's not being dealt with on the inside and you speak to it publicly, that might be disparaging. But from my perspective, that's the right thing to do. I mean, how do you deal with, you know, the the idea of not disparaging, but also calling out? Do you think Jonathan um, did the wrong thing by speaking out about this publicly, you know, despite what it what it cost him? Do I think that he did did the the wrong wrong thing. thing? Right. Because I because I don't and I and I understand a lot of people can talk about how well you know you shouldn't air out dirty laundry and all of this stuff but you know racism and and those sorts of problems that he was describing isn't just airing out dirty laundry we're talking about the safety of individuals sure the mental health of individuals um, he mentioned knowing the fraternity would you know paint a clearer picture and since I don't know what that fraternity is it kind of seems like what he got canned for was a non-issue mm-hmm. so there must be shade that i wasn't feeling <laughs> right and you know there's there, there's always undercurrents and i'm sure things that i don't even know but like i said i'll i'll, uh, I'll post some information but from what you said it's you know and from hearing the conversation jonathan has done this in the past yeah and oh, has yeah. affected some change oh yes yes okay so yeah. well at what point do they go okay we it, it's hard to know not knowing what that fraternity is, is what I'm saying. But my hat's off to Jonathan for for doing that as long as he did. We started this whole thing today with that Cat Williams, uh, you know, excerpt. And, you know, you can't chase the bag from the front lines. We can, He we couldn't can... chase that bag in that hat he was wearing is what the problem was. <laughs> uh, Cat Williams you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, we can translate the bag, you know, the money into one of these coveted positions, you know, the value of mm-hmm. being a part of a team. You can't chase that and also, you know, 
fight for justice right. if, if if you see you know something going wrong and this is a this is a prime example so um shout out to jonathan for all of the work that he's doing over in new york again as we celebrate pride month understand that there are black queer people there are, uh, uh queer people of color black trans women who are suffering and are suffering oftentimes at the hands of queer communities and queer spaces so please keep this in mind do not leave equity at the door when you enter queer spaces or when you want to engage with queer communities. I, I think that's a, gr- a great way to just boil this down. Mm. Racial equity does not stop when you go to the gay bar, or when you go to the pride parade, or when you go to this town hall or this focus group or whatever. You have to apply that in that space as well. So, you know, that that's one of the reasons I've stayed out of the gay bars for so long and and, and, and it, it just is what it is. But, mm. you know, here we are fighting the good fight. All right, y'all. Until next week. 